0: And the serpent said to the woman, You shall not surely die, for God knows that on the day you eat of it, then your eyes shall be opened, and you shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. In his book, The Language Instinct, Steven Pinker describes an enigma for the field of linguistics, why so many related languages still have entirely different words for the butterfly. Pinker quotes an extraordinary answer from the linguist Haj Ross. The image of the butterfly, he writes, is a uniquely powerful one in the group minds of the world's cultures, with its somewhat unpromising start as a caterpillar, followed by its dazzling finish of visual symmetry, coupled with the emotional unforgettability of the butterfly's flip-zagging path through our consciousness. Butterflies are such perfect symbols of transformation that almost no culture is content to accept another's poetry for this mythic creature. Each language finds its own verbal beauty to celebrate the stunning salience of the butterfly's being." Quote. The ability to speak, to articulate, to describe, and to name lies at the heart of our humanity and can serve as a source of such joy. And yet, language also allows us to obfuscate, to excuse, and to make situations seem less bad than they truly are. One is reminded of the New Yorker cartoon in which someone says, Thank goodness for the word muffin. Otherwise, I'd be eating cake for breakfast every morning. What if it is language that lies at the heart of mankind's first sin? And what if language allowed mankind at this moment of despair to discover the existence of hope? Welcome to Bible 365. I'm Mayor Soloveitchik. The tale of Adam and Eve's sin and expulsion from Eden is enigmatic, and we could spend 365 lectures on it alone, but we will not do that. What we will do is use the lens of language and understanding of the gift of speech to study this famous story. We pick up from where we left off in chapter 2. Adam is created from dust all alone, and he has given up part of his body to make a mate. He is introduced to woman, and the first sentence in all of human history is spoken. Here, too, as with Adam's original name, the Hebrew text features a sort of pun. Genesis 2, verse 23. And the man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, Isha, because she was taken out of man, Ish. That's all Adam says. Note what Adam does not do. He does not engage the woman in conversation. He does not talk to her about his hopes and dreams. He does not even say, Madam, I'm Adam. All he does is name her, Ish, Isha, man, woman. She comes from me. Adam does not speak to her, but about her, and the name that he gives her is all about him, which reveals a sort of self-centeredness. He describes her, but he does not converse with her. One is reminded of a statement by the television character Homer Simpson, who once said that, finally, people weren't laughing at me, they were laughing towards me. Adam speaks at his wife, towards his wife, but not with his wife. Man has the power of speech. Woman is similarly gifted, and yet strikingly they do not converse with one another. And when we next meet the woman, the first conversation in the Bible is between herself and the serpent. Her husband, after pronouncing possession through his linguistic power, seems to have left the scene. Who is this serpent? Does it represent Satan or our own inner inclination? Or is it meant to be an eloquent animal? However, we are to understand this sinister snake, it is eloquent indeed. His forked tongue reflects the duality at the heart of speech and his eloquence assaults the single command given to mankind. Genesis 2, verse 16. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat, but of the tree of knowledge of good and evil thou shalt not eat of it, for on the day that thou eatest of it thou shalt surely die. This does not mean that they will die on that day, but that upon consuming the fruit they will become mortal. What is this tree? What is wrong with knowing good and evil? There are almost infinite interpretations, but the argument put forward by the serpent speaking to the woman alone without Adam allows us to intuit an answer. Genesis chapter 3, verse 4. And the serpent said to the woman, You shall not surely die, for God knows that on the day you eat of it, then your eyes shall be opened, and you shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. To eat from the tree is to make it our own, and what the serpent is counseling is asserting independence against God. To partake of this tree is to become one's own arbiter of right and wrong. Whitaker Chambers, who embraced and then abandoned communism, once wrote that Communism is not new. It is, in fact, man's second oldest faith. Its promise was whispered in the first days of the creation under the tree of the knowledge of good and evil He shall be as God's. It is the great alternative faith of mankind, End quote. This is apt. Communism spoke of mankind's liberation and brought about its diminution. It promised paradise and delivered a hell. Through the forked tongue of the serpent, the terrible power of language makes itself manifest as morality is redefined. The great Jewish biblical commentator, Rabbi Samson Raphael Hirsch, put it this way. The earth can become a paradise only under one condition, that we call good only that which God calls good, and bad only that which God calls bad. The first sin is to call bad good and good bad, highlighting how our linguistic gift of description contains a powerful peril. The Yiddish writer Isaac Basheve Singer, cited by Steven Pinker, wrote a short story in which Chelm, a town known for its foolishness, faced a shortage of sour cream before the Pentecost holiday, a time when dairy foods are traditionally eaten. The rabbi suggested, Let us make a law that water is to be called sour cream, and sour cream is to be called water. Since there is plenty of water in the wells of Chelm, each housewife will have a full barrel of sour cream. Because of this, Singer writes, there was no lack of sour cream in Chelm. But some housewives complained that there was a lack of water. But this was an entirely new problem, to be solved after the holiday. Language, in other words, allows us to ignore and re-describe reality, and calling good bad And bad good is the very source of sin. Back to Genesis. The woman eats of the tree and gives her husband to eat. After this act of rebellion, they flee from the presence of God in the garden, and the peril of language introduces itself once again. God says in verse 11, Hast thou eaten of the tree of which I commanded thee that thou shouldst not eat? And the man said, The woman whom thou didst give to be with me, she gave me of the tree, and I did eat. And the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that thou hast done? And the woman said, The serpent beguiled me, and I did eat. Adam then uses language not to confess contritely, but to deny all responsibility. The woman you gave me, God, she gave me the forbidden fruit, so really it's your fault. Similarly, Eve, the serpent beguiled me. Or as we might put it today, this isn't on me. Man and woman are expelled from Eden and are informed that now they are mortal. Dust thou art, and to dust thou shalt return. A desperate doom descends as we realize that language here was an instrument of selfishness and self centeredness, deception and falsehood. And we are left wondering to ourselves if Adam had just spoken to his wife when they first met and founded a relationship built on loving language, would the whole history of the world be different? And what, ladies and gentlemen, about us? Does not duplicitous language lie at the heart of so many things that we have done wrong? Have we not ruined relationships because we treated others as objects rather than people? Have we not made excuses, as did Adam, saying that we are mere victims of circumstance? But suddenly, in Genesis, positive potential of speech reveals itself. Up till this point, Adam had not given his wife a personal name. Esha, woman, is all he called her. Facing his mortality, man looks at his wife differently. Genesis 3, verse 20. And the man called his wife's name Chava, Eve, because she was the mother of all life. Chava is linked to the Hebrew word chai, life. Chava, Eve, essentially means source of life. The scholar Leon Cass put it this way. Woman alone, he writes, carries the antidote to disaster, the prospect of life ever renewable. With revelational clarity, the man sees the woman in yet another light, this time truly, not just as flesh to be joined, not just as another to impress and admire, but as a generous, generating, and creative being with powers he can only look up to in awe. He names her anew, this time with no reference to himself. Only now, at last, is she known as Eve, source of life and hope, End quote. Eve is finally a true partner, and together, Adam and Eve will have children, which, for the Bible, is the truest response to mortality itself. But how will Eve see the children she is destined to bear? The first progeny arrives, named by Eve in the beginning of chapter 4. And Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have created a man with the Lord. Here, rather than turn to God in gratitude for her child, Eve, like Adam before her, uses language to celebrate herself, considering herself the equal of the Almighty. The verse continues. And she again bore his brother Abel. Abel, Hevel, whose name means breath or transience, seems, as many note, almost an afterthought. The pride linked to Cain and the lack of interest in Abel is reflected in the brothers' relationship. Each offers sacrifices to God. When only Abel's is accepted and Cain is envious, now language leads to violence. We are not told what Cain said, only that through speech he lured Abel into a trap. Verse 8, And Cain spoke to Abel his brother, and it came to pass when they were both in the field, and Cain rose up against Abel his brother and slew him. And if we understand that language is at the heart of all that is occurring here, the next verse is profound. And the Lord said unto Cain, Where is Abel thy brother? And he said, I know not. Am I my brother's keeper? And God said, What hast thou done? Thy brother's blood cries unto me from the ground. You, God says to Cain, you have used speech to deny the truth, but the blood of your brother also speaks, crying out to me. Cain is exiled. Generations pass and we are introduced to his descendant, Lamech. Whereas his ancestor Cain kills in jealous rage, Lamech seems to engage in violence as a vocation. Whereas Cain used language to deny his crime, Lamech engages in exquisite expression to glorify his escapades. Genesis 5, verse 23. And Lamech said unto his wives, Ada and Tzela, hear my voice. Ye wives of Lamech, hearken unto my speech, for I have slain a man to my wounding and a young man to my bruising. If Cain shall be avenged sevenfold, truly Lamech, seventy and sevenfold. I have, Lamech seems to say, killed all men who wounded me, killed many more than Cain. We have met thus far, ladies and gentlemen, almost every aspect of language, to name narcissistically and to name with love, to communicate God's commands and to defy them, to deny blame and to discover hope. But now, for the first time, something new emerges. Poetry is composed and recited in celebration of violence. Lamech represents in the Bible a new achievement for language, the epic poem of lauding the hero for his feats of strength. Lamech, as Cass puts it, is, quote, a combination of Achilles and Homer. He seeks nothing less, Cass writes, than immortal fame, apotheosis by being master of life and death. Lamech marks the moment in the history of mankind when the gift of speech is utilized to make violence a virtue. An age of terrible brutality is suddenly upon us, and perhaps the linguistic glorification of violence helps lead to the immorality of the antediluvian age, one defined, as the Bible will tell us, by hamas, violence, brought about, seemingly, by the descendants of Cain, the first murderer of a member of mankind. But in the midst of all this, an entirely different family is formed. Adam and Eve have another child. Having lost Abel, having seen Cain gone astray, the first woman bestows an entirely other name, one reflecting only awe, shet, or seth, which means gift. Genesis 4:25. And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son, and called his name Seth. For God, said she, has given me another son in place of Abel that Cain slew. In contrast to Cain, Eve's new name recognizes the birth of her child not as a source of pride, but of gratitude. Seth's descendant is a man who is also called Lamech. Lamech II has a child, and now another name is given in Genesis 5, verse 28. And Lamech lived 182 years and begot a son, and he called his name Noah, saying, This one shall comfort us for our work and toil of our hands. Noah's name reflects not pride or joy in violence, but, like the name of his ancestor Seth, gratitude for life itself, a child providing joy in the face of life's troubles. It is therefore no surprise that Noah avoids the violence of his age, and it cannot be a coincidence that this man will serve as the sole source of hope for the future of life on earth. Thus, Genesis 6, verse 5. And the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, for I repent that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. As we prepare for the tale of the flood, we are left to ponder the power of speech, source of sin, and hope. The late news anchor Tim Russert once published the letters that he had received from people about their fathers. And one piece of correspondence from Pamela Lazarus is all about language. She wrote, I will always remember representing my elementary school in a state spelling bee. Dad and I spent countless hours studying the word list. I really thought I could go all the way, but I was eliminated early on with the word absolute. When I returned home after my devastating loss, under my pillow was a beautifully wrapped box. In the box was a gold bracelet and a note that said, With absolute love, Dad. Oh, so that's how absolute is spelled. The bracelet is long gone, she wrote, but 27 years later, the note is one of my prized possessions. I still wonder how Dad got the gift and the note under my pillow before I raced to bed to wallow in my sorrow. He took my loss over absolute and replaced it with absolute love. Just as flippancy with words can be destructive, carefully chosen language can have extraordinary power to heal. In an age of violence of man against man, Noah finds favor with God, perhaps because his very name reminds him of the gift that is life. Language sets man apart, and language leads man astray. With the flood about to begin, God's finding favor with Noah reminds us how one name, one word, can lead to nothing less than the endurance of the human race and the redemption of the world. This is Mayor Soloveitchik, looking forward to learning together tomorrow, signing off.